So we are in the Gospel of John, and we're in that fourth chapter, and you've just heard Danny read verses 27 through 41. And uh, as an intro into this, I'm going to uh, basically hit on three major points, and I'm going to go ahead and show you that so you know where I'm going, and then I'm going to jump into an intro. So the first point um, you're going to see, or we're going to talk about, is this idea of spiritual blindness and the cataracts of religion. Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about cataracts. As we age, those things happened. Is that not? Yes, I see some heads nodding. Um, and then the second point is spiritual food. There Jesus says, I have food that you don't even know about. And so we're going to talk about what is he saying there. And then he talks about sowing and reaping. And we're going we're gonna to dive into what he means by sowing and reaping. By intro to point one, the, uh, the idea of spiritual blindness, I'm going to tell you uh, a, a true story. In the uh, late 90s, Peggy and I were working with Campus Outreach, which is a college ministry to university students, and we were down for the summer in Daytona Beach, Florida. I know a lot of y'all vacation there, so that's a familiar area. Um, and we would have summer projects that would last eight to ten weeks, and basically the students would take jobs, and they would work during the day, and then in the evening, we would do the training. So this uh, two guys, Josh and Yates, uh, Yates was probably six seven and played football there at Valdosta State. Um, Josh was driving the car this particular morning, and they had to be at work to make the donuts at Dunkin' Donuts early. So they were leaving at like 4.30 in the morning. And on this particular morning, it was incredibly foggy. Like you could only see probably 50 yards in front of you. And so Josh and Yates got into the car. My understanding, it's been a long time, but Josh was driving. And they were going to work at 4.30 or so in the morning and as they're driving along, just kind of having their morning coffee, talking to each other, all of a sudden, out of the blue, a tractor trailer has parked itself. It's really not parking. It's trying to back into a loading dock and unload, but it is all the way across the highway. They're going about 45 miles an hour, and remember, visibility was about 50 yards, so they're talking and at the, at the last second, they see the truck. They try to hit their brakes, but it's too late. They go underneath the trailer of the truck. And as it is, it almost took both their heads off. Yates's scalp was hit right here, and it just peeled it back almost like uh, a Western movie where an American Indian would cut off a scalp. I mean... They literally had to take the flap and sew it back on his head. Josh received the worst part. Josh's whole face was just mangled. I mean mangled. It looked, it looked horrible. He had to have multiple surgeries. And if you saw Josh today, you would still know something really significant happened to him. Blindness is really, really dangerous. Blindness, physical blindness, can cause 
lots of pain. Spiritual blindness is what I believe John has been writing about through these first few chapters, and I'm going to show you. Um, We've seen it already, but I want you to see in these first few chapters how John has been talking about spiritual blindness. So, if you, uh, if you would, look with me at John 2, 19. So we're going to go back. We've already you know, looked at this passage in previous weeks. But in John 2, 19, this is the first example of spiritual blindness. It's, Jesus says this. He tells the Jewish people, he says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you say you're going to raise it up in three days? You see what they were doing? They don't have spiritual sight. They're just thinking about it purely in the physical. The temple is actually Jesus. Jesus is saying, you're going to destroy me, and in three days, I'm going to to rise. But they can't see this. They're spiritually blind. Look again at uh, John 3, 3, another example of spiritual blindness. Jesus comes to Nicodemus, or actually Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night, and he says, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So here we have another situation where Nicodemus can't see spiritually. He doesn't have spiritual sight. He can't understand what Jesus is talking about. And so Jesus is basically talking about spiritual rebirth. Nicodemus just sees it as physical birth. And then look in our passage From last week, John 4.10, Jesus says to the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, excuse me, I'm all tangled up. Y'all, I promise I'm going to get there. There we go. Excuse me. Um, In 4.10, Jesus says to the woman at the well, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman says to Jesus, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. So she has no spiritual sight for what Jesus is talking about. So you've got the Jewish people about the temple. You've got Nicodemus about being born again. And now you have this lady at the well He's saying, I'm going to give you eternal life, spiritual water, and she's, you don't even have a bucket. She can't see it. And then finally, in our text today, look at John 4.31. In John 4.31, the disciples are now the ones that are blind. His disciples say to Jesus, Rabbi, eat. And Jesus says to them, I have food to eat that you do not even know about. And the disciples said to each other, has anyone brought him something to eat? They have no spiritual sight. They can't make the connection. 
Verse 34, Jesus tells him, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So the question that I have is why has John taken four chapters in the beginning of his book to give us four examples of blindness, spiritual blindness? And the answer must be, and I believe the answer is, is it's because we are blind. It's not just them, it's us. We're blind. We're blind before we come to Christ. We cannot see the things of God. And the scriptures say that in Corinthians. And then after we come to Christ, I don't know if you know how cataracts work. I didn't until this week. But the, wa- the eye is made up mostly of water and protein. And as things happen throughout your life, for example, if you have ultraviolet radiation, so you look at the light without proper glasses, you have diabetes, hypertension, obesity, smoking, prolonged use of steroids. See you, Joseph. <laughs> um, all of these things can create protein deposits on the eye, which eventually cover the eye and cause blindness. What I'm saying is this, is that even after we become a Christian or before we are Christians, often the protein, so to speak, to use the analogy, is religion that keeps us from seeing God. And what do I mean by that? Well, Essentially, what I mean by it is our good works. There's something in us, all of us, it plays to our pride to believe that we can be good enough that we don't need what Christ did for our salvation. So if my good outweighs my bad, well, then I go to heaven, right? The gospel clearly says that is not the case. If that were the case, why would Jesus ever have to die? Jesus had to die because you can't be good enough and I can't be good enough. And the only way I can have a relationship with God is by trusting what Christ did for me. That is essentially the gospel. But here's the problem. And I think this this problem is rampant all across our nation and really, I think, all over the world. Is that we see religion or we see Jesus as a ticket to heaven. He's our ticket. And so we take our ticket and we put it in our pocket and I got this and now I just go about the rest of my life and I live my life and I do whatever I want to do, but I got the ticket. I got the ticket. I know I'm going to heaven. It's all good for me. Somebody says, are you a Christian? Yes, I got my ticket. I got Jesus right here. I added him to my life back when I was a young guy, and I know I live like hell, but I've got the ticket, you know, I'm good. Here's the thing, and this is where I want to challenge some of us. If we are viewing, and this is what Jesus was doing with them, if you're viewing him as your ticket, you've totally missed it. You've completely missed it, and the fact of the matter is, 
you'll spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. And that's real. Jesus can't be your ticket. Jesus is not a ticket. Jesus is a person. And here's the thing. We want to go to heaven, but sometimes we think about heaven mostly about the people that have died that we miss and how it's going to be perfect and there's going to be no sorrow. But you know what the real joy about heaven is? Is it's where Jesus is. It's where God is. And so I'm going to say it like this. That if you're not treasuring Jesus, and He's not your greatest joy, and He's not the thing that is making you happy and sustaining you and bringing life into you, then you're missing it. Missing it meaning you think He's the ticket. Jesus will not be your ticket. He is God. And he will be God. And he will be treasured above all else. And unless you're finding your greatest joy in him, you don't have a ticket. You don't know this God. Because think about it, y'all. Think about it. If we could see, and, and that's why Jesus is talking about blindness. If we could see him for who he really is in his majesty in His glory, in His beauty, everything about this life that you find to be absolutely beautiful, like this morning, for example. I'm sitting in prayer, and Natalie Brooks prays every time in prayer, and she's not praying about anything, really. I mean, if you listen to her prayer, it's just all over the place. But it is absolutely adorable, and I peek out of my eye, and I catch Mallory McCracken smiling because she's listening to this little baby pray. That's all that's good in this world. Those are the things. That is a glimpse, only a shadow of the beauty of the goodness of God. The babies that we hold in our hands, a glimpse. Only a glimpse, only a mere shadow of the beauty and the majesty of God. And so, how could you know that God in its fullness, in his majesty, and view him as the ticket? He's just my ticket. I'm going to go to heaven when I die because I got my ticket. I'm telling you, if you're not madly in love with God... If he is not transforming you from the inside out, if he is not everything to you and you're not treasuring him more than all else, I don't think you know God. How could you know that God and just view him as a ticket? I just don't think it's possible. And that's what I think Jesus is saying in all four of those situations to the Jews, to Nicodemus, to the lady at the well, he's saying, if you could just see me, you would ask me for living water and I would give you water that would spring up like a well. But you can't see me. Why can't we see him? That's a great question. You know, why can't we see him? I think it is our endless nibbling at the table of the world 
that causes the protein deposits in our eyes spiritually to build up. We nibble, we nibble. Yesterday, I'm, I'm trying to lose a little bit of weight. I'm always trying to lose weight. I think I'm going to die trying to lose weight. Um, and I come in there, and Peggy somehow has got some Publix cookies that shouldn't be in our house. And I go in there, and I nibble. And, and then I go back, because it was so good, and I nibble a little more. And then she says, what do you want for dinner? It's like, I had cookies. We're nibbling at the world. We're nibbling at the world. And because we're nibbling at the world, when it comes time for the feast that is Christ, we're full. We're not hungry anymore. We've already eaten. I've gotten my fill somewhere else. Y'all, we need the Holy Spirit of God. That is what Jesus told Nicodemus. If you go back to John 3, 8, this is what he said. He said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We need the mighty, sovereign, life-giving, eye-opening, heart-wakening work of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. And if we don't have it, we won't see. If we don't have it, we will remain blind and we'll hold on to our ticket. I walked down an aisle when I was 12, but I lived like hell for 38, 58, 68 years. I know I'm going to heaven. I say, baloney. If you don't treasure Christ, if you don't see him as the greatest joy, if you can't see his majesty and his beauty, I say you don't know him. And your life should reflect that. Not because you're trying to work it up and try to be good. No, it's because you've seen the most incredible thing ever. And Jesus says, it's like the man who saw a pearl in the field and he went and he sold everything in his joy. He went and he sold everything in his joy. And he went and he bought that field because in that field was that treasure. That treasure is Christ. That's the treasure. Will you sell everything for that treasure? I went to uh, Thailand. I saw a leper colony. I know I've told that story before, but basically when you get leprosy, your nerves die, so you don't know what you're doing. You can set your hand down on a burning stove until you smell something, you wouldn't know to move it. What's happening to us in this life is summed up like this, this quote, sin is like spiritual leprosy. It deadens your spiritual senses so that you rip your soul to shreds and you don't even feel it. We're blind, we cannot see. C.S. Lewis may have said it better than anybody. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. We're nibbling at cookies, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I'll take that little Publix cookie over sirloin. No, no. Point two, spiritual food. Look at John 31 through 34. Look what Jesus says to the disciples. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Has he got some cookies from Publix? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So what is Jesus' food? Jesus' food is to do the will of the Father. Now, that doesn't make sense because like them, we view things physically. You need food. But Jesus is not just human. He's God. And there's a big difference. So if you look, though, there is, there's something more specific implied here that's going on. And I want to make a connection with verses 35 and 36 so that it makes sense. When Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, what is the will of him who sent him? What is the Father's will for the Son? God's will for Jesus, the work that he gave him to accomplish, is to give the world eternal life. Now, how do I know that? John 12, 49 and 50 says it this way. The Father who sent me has given himself, has given me a commandment. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. So the commandment that the Father gave the Son, the will for the Father is to go give eternal life to his people. And then in John 6.39, it says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Jesus has come. His will and his food is to give eternal life to us, to the people. So, here's the deal. The disciples were sent into Sakar, which was the town there. Jesus said, go get me some food. And his mind, he's going, <laughs> they come back. He's like, they say, hey, did somebody give this guy some food? Jesus is like, I've been eating the whole time you were gone. I have been sitting here gorging myself, filling my spiritual stomach because I've been giving this woman, this Samaritan woman, eternal life. That's the food. That's the food that I'm feeding on, is I've been giving her eternal life. And what I know that you don't know is she's going into the city, and when she comes back, you're going to see in all these white clothing of these people coming through these grain fields, a harvest, a harvest of food, eternal life. These people are coming to receive eternal life. The Samaritans are about to be harvested. And you're going to reap what you did not sow. I sowed it. 
John the Baptist sowed it. The prophets sowed it. But you didn't sow in these Samaritans' lives. But you're about to reap. We're about to have a banquet, a harvest. And so Jesus is telling them. But there's one other thing here that's really interesting to me. I want you to see the progression of the lady at the well, the Samaritan woman, at first and then when she gets all the way to the end. Like, we're all on this spiritual journey. This journey happens faster for her maybe than it does for us in uh, time and space and in our lives. But look at John 4, 6. In John 4, 6, he's referred to as Jesus. But in John 4, 9, as a Jew. This is her revelation of Jesus. And then in John 4, 11, 15, and 19, as Sir or Lord. But then when you get down to John 4, 19, it's starting to pick up steam. Her eyes are starting to see. And she says, you must be a prophet. And then you get a little bit in 425, she says, you must be the Messiah. And then it comes down, she calls him the Christ in 25 and 29. In 26, I am, we know that from the Old Testament. And then in 431, Rabbi, but, but look, if you will, at 442, look what ultimately she sees and the Samaritans see. In 442, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So it goes from Jesus to Jew to Sir to Prophet to Messiah to Christ to I Am to Rabbi to you're the Savior of the world. You see that? progressively, progressively. So titles of respect move to titles of belief. And I believe that is true even in our efforts to share with our friends who this Jesus is. It goes from titles of respect to titles of belief. Only if the Holy Spirit is working and removing the blinders. Well, what is our food? Jesus' food is to do the will of the Father. Our food, what is our, what is our food? Look at John 4.10. Jesus answered her, the lady at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What is living water? Look with me at John 7, 38 through 39. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There it is again. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, but Jesus was not yet glorified. So basically, the Spirit of God is the river of living water. What happens to a soul when it is fed living water? I'll tell you what happens. That soul becomes supernatural. It becomes unnatural. It is not like the world. And where I'm going with this is what happened with this woman at the well. 
she received this living water, and she went to Sakar and she began to tell them, come, this guy's told me everything I've ever did, good and bad. And you know what happens? They come to faith in Christ himself. And that means only the Holy Spirit could do that work. The living water that had been given to her now is flowing into the lives of the other Samaritans. Well, that's not just for her. The difference is it's for you. If, indeed, you have treasured Christ more than all else and His Holy Spirit has come in you and is indwelling in you, then you have the power to, like Lazarus and Jesus, go to somebody and in sharing the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, you can say, Lazarus, come forth. And that person can come to life in Jesus. Now, you may say, I don't know if that's, I've never really had that experience. One, I would say, if you share with someone the truths of the gospel, they may be anywhere in that process, like the lady at the well. They may be calling him Jesus, Jew. They may be calling him sir. They may be calling him prophet. They may be calling him Messiah. We're all sowing, and sometimes we get to reap. The disciples got to reap a harvest that they did not sow. If you ever get to reap and pray with someone, you're surely building on someone else's foundation. Know that. It's Jesus' foundation. It's the prophets. It's the scripture. It might be somebody contemporary that has already been sharing Christ with them. We should never take credit for when someone comes to faith in Christ. A thousand things have happened by that point for them to place their faith in Christ. But you may get to be, you may get to be the one. And so, for me, I'll never forget, you know, when I showed up as a freshman in college, um, I, met a, I met a young man, he shared Christ with me, he introduced me to somebody else, that guy began taking me to lunch, sharing Christ with me weekly, and uh, after I became a Christian, months later, he told me this, he said, Clint, are there a few friends in your life that you could be praying for specifically and asking God to open their eyes spiritually? And I said, yeah, I guess. And he said, well, let's, let's be specific. He said, why don't you create a short list of people that you're going to pray for and let's see what happens in their life. So I created a list. I called it my top 10 most wanted and uh, I started praying through that list, and I went home for Christmas, and one of the guys came home. He was in the Marine Corps at the time. He said, hey, I'd love to get together. We got together. I told him what had happened in my life. He uh, sat in the car with me till three in the morning. I had been praying for him for months, and uh, at the end of the night, he was very close. I could tell to trusting Christ with his life. He said, why don't we get up and go to church in the morning? So we did. We got up, went to First Baptist Woodstock. And when the altar call came, I leaned over to him. I said, do you want to trust Christ? And he said, yes. And we walked down this aisle and he gave his life to Christ. And I began to see his life change. He went back out to California where he was stationed. He called a navigator and he called Leroy Imes, who's written several books. And he said, Mr. Imes, I'd love for you to disciple me. And Mr. Iams said, well, can you meet me at 5 a.m. at such and such? He was testing him. 
And they, he met him there at 5 a.m. They began a relationship. They started working out together. Leroy Iams, at 70 years old, came to do our conference. And he said, oh, you, you're the guy that influenced Mike. And I said, that's right. He said, the Marine. And uh, he said, we work out together. He's, and then Leroy Iams said, you know, I can still bench 225. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow, that's pretty impressive, 70 years old. But anyway, Mike's life changed. And then I got a call from Bobby. Bobby was playing for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I was praying for him. He had went to the University of Alabama on a baseball scholarship, drafted by the Pirates. I came home. Bobby and I met. We talked and talked and talked. Get this. There were several guys on his baseball team that were sharing Christ with him. Long story short, he committed his life to Christ. Things began to turn around. So two out of my top ten were there. And then Mike showed me one day a list. And on the list, he had uh, written five players on the football team the year that I came. And at the top of the list was my name. He had been praying specifically for me to come to Christ. And he gave me the piece of paper, and I lost it. I was going to show it to you this morning, but I couldn't find it. I have it somewhere. Um, my point is this. God is calling us as his people to be a part of sowing and reaping in the lives of those who do not know Christ. And I want to exhort you. I want to encourage you. Because as you look at this verse, look at, uh, look at John, sowing and reaping is the final point. But look at John um, 4, and he says, down in the verse, in uh, 35, I'll read it. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life. You know what those wages are? Most of the commentators and most of the theologians are saying that the disciples who did not sow, Jesus sowed in the Samaritans, but the disciples are going to reap where they did not sow, and the wages is the souls of those that are coming to the Lord, the joy of being a part of them coming to know Christ. That is the wages that he's referring to. When he says the fields are white, it's the people. The people are coming through. Others have labored, and you're entering into their labor. And then it says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. So she was influential, but then also the word was influential. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And so, in closing, Jesus came to one of the most unlikely people in that day that you could ever imagine. A woman 
a Samaritan, an immoral person? What does that tell us about our God? I think that it at least tells us God's heart is not for those that don't need a doctor. He says, I came for the sick, not those that are well. I came for the broken, not not all those that have it all together. I came for those who feel outcast, not the ones that are in the inner circle. God came for the world. Jesus came for all of us. It reveals his heart for people. And then God used her. He didn't just save her, but God used her mightily among the Samaritan people. So, God can use you. I promise, God can use you. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, God can use you. He can use you in other people's lives. We will enter into someone else's labor, but we will be used in that. And so, because we see that This is a supernatural work that the Holy Spirit and only the Holy Spirit can can take us from darkness and blindness to being able to see the majesty, the beauty, the glory of God. Perhaps the greatest thing that we can do as a church, corporately and individually, is to pray. Pray that God through the power of his spirit, would open the eyes of the blind, would do a spiritual surgery on our blind eyes that we might see the glory and majesty of God. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this morning, for your word, for the life of this lady in the scripture for the reality that you're not a ticket, that you truly are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you. I pray that we would be all of that, that we would be caught up in the joy and the happiness of knowing you. And I pray this in Christ's name.